Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's a stunning development for most voters, regardless of their political positions. Talk about an October surprise. It is extraordinary on many different levels, given this president's history with managing, or many would argue mismanaging, what is still an out-of-control pandemic in our country. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. News of Donald Trump's COVID diagnosis, his stint at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, and his theatrical return to the White House on Monday night were, of course, the big stories of the week, all of which made Wednesday night's vice presidential debate feel like even more of a sideshow than usual. Both candidates studiously avoided any explicit mention of the president's diagnosis, but Trump nonetheless loomed large over the whole thing. Even the opening spiel from moderator Susan Page was pretty clearly aimed at the president. The two campaigns and the Commission on Presidential Debates have agreed to the ground rules for tonight. I'm here to enforce them. We want a debate that is lively, but Americans also deserve a discussion that is civil. Not since he decided to skip a primary debate in 2016 was Trump's absence so keenly felt on a debate stage. Before we get to the issues, let's address the elephant not in the room tonight. (laughs) And as it turns out, Wednesday nights might have been the last debate between the two campaigns we're going to get. On Thursday morning, the Presidential Commission on Debates announced that the next contest would be held virtually. After all, one of the candidates has a deadly and highly contagious disease, and he skipped the required test last time. The president quickly responded. I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's not what debating's all about. You sit behind a computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. And then they cut you off whenever they want. As is so often the case with this president, it appears that all of his predictions that Biden would be the one trying to get out of debating him were just projection. I know he'd like not to do the debates. I think he probably has to. I don't know how you get out of the debates. I think you probably have to. I don't think he wants to debate at all. I've seen that uh, he wants to try and blame COVID for that, too. He's not getting out of his basement. He's got a, you know, basement deal going. Now the plan is to move the debate to October 22nd to give Trump more time to recover. And frankly, I have a hard time believing that he'll ever pass up the chance to appear live for 90 minutes before 70 million people, assuming he's remotely healthy enough. That would put the last debate on October 29th if it actually happens. Then comes a socially distanced Halloween and then Election Day, November 3rd. Yet we don't really have an Election Day anymore. By the time you listen to this, more than 6 million people will already have cast their ballots. In Pennsylvania alone, 2.5 million absentee ballot requests have been sent in. Later in the show, we'll talk to the state's lieutenant governor, Democrat John Fetterman, about why it's important not to get panicked about the Postal Service and why the best move for voters is to mail those suckers back, not show up in person on Election Day. As of earlier this week, in Florida, half a million Democrats have returned mail ballots, compared with just 270,000 Republicans. That's a state where Republicans normally win mail-in voting. In North Carolina, more than 200,000 Democrats have already turned in ballots, three times the number of Republicans who have done the same. 
On today's show, I wanted to do something that we haven't seen anywhere yet, and that's a thorough run-through of the entire electoral map, House, Senate, and President. We're not going to hit every single race, but we do want to go deeper into the weeds than most news outlets would. And for that, we need a Sherpa. And there's nobody better than the Washington Post's Dave Weigel, who joins us now from Utah. Dave, welcome to Deconstructed. Sure. So, Dave, the reason I wanted to have you on is because everybody knows that the Senate is in play on on November 3rd. And people who've been following it even remotely closely know that you know Susan Collins is is quite vulnerable. And, you know, and if Democrats don't beat Susan Collins, it's very hard to see what their path is to taking back the Senate. They also know that Mark Kelly was probably picking up his Senate seat, picking up that Senate seat in Arizona. Cory Gardner, a Republican in, in Colorado, is, is, is struggling hard. But I wanted to go one layer further and talk about some of the other races around the country that you've been covering closely. And, and let's, let's do this kind of rapid fire so that we can uh, you know, bring as many as we can to people's attention. So, so Iowa, uh, Joni Ernst in 2014 kind of breaks onto the national stage with this bizarre ad about mm-hmm. castrating pigs. And, you know, she's going to bring that same energy to Washington. I'm Joni Ernst. I grew up castrating hogs on an Iowa farm. So when I get to Washington, I'll know how to cut pork. How's she looking this time around? Well, and that ad was kind of telling because it, it was an attempt to bait Democrats into making fun of her. And by Democrats, I mean just people online, people on TV. You see this in the Trump-Biden campaign, too. And when Biden doesn't say something offensive, they try to find you know, some liberal celebrity to make fun of it. Mm-hmm. So she was very good at channeling this sort of liberal outrage. She was triggering the libs. She was triggering the libs. That's the term for it. And this this cycle, she didn't have a very strong message out of the gate. They didn't take her Democratic opponent seriously to raise Greenfield had run for Congress in 2018. Her campaign manager basically scammed her and because he falsified signatures, got her kicked off the ballot. Uh, Republicans just wrote her off and said that this is a second or third tier recruit. And that's not entirely wrong. That's going to be a theme is a lot of the people who are doing fine in the polls right now or even ahead were not the party's first choice. Mm-hmm. So so Greenfield is just a uh, farmer turned businesswoman. Nothing that Incredible about her record, not a ton of money to spend on her own, but she just dug in and fundraised. And she also, I think all these Democrats this cycle benefited from this rolling interest the Democratic base suddenly has in giving to everybody, you know, giving to just going to mm-hmm. Blue and spamming it. Right. So she raised a bunch of money and Ernst did not take her seriously until kind of now. I mean, she, but, but the attacks on her have been repetitive. She hasn't really found a theme. And and I was one, and we'll probably talk about more of these. These states were just the party thought the 2016 map was was locked in stone, and did not do the work to prevent Democrats from winning back some of mm-hmm. these people that voted for Barack Obama twice. I mean, that, that's kind of the Greenfield coalition. She got more suburbanites, and she's pulled back some of these these Obama voters. Right, and Democrats won three of those House seats in 2018, and almost won the the JD Shulton one. Does does JD have any shot against the generic Republican that's running in that fourth district this time? Uh, the party doesn't treat it like that. Uh, JD actually made a statement of not of rejecting national party money. And I'm not, I'm not scoffing on purpose, but hmm. it was smart for him to do that because he wasn't going to get any the party. Right. They're not triaging. They're actually playing pretty aggressively around the country, but they're playing in places that have more Paneras mm-hmm. and pizza ranches, I'd say. And Northwest Iowa is not one of the places they see as super fruitful. I mean, right. to the extent they hold those districts like Minnesota seventh and Colin Peterson, they're trying to hold them. But they're not really trying to make gains in those places. That where they see the gains are these right. 
these kind of soft underbelly suburban districts. And where they see the Senate race is coming into play, it's often these 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 voters who just have been Republican without ex- without objection for such a long time that have right. been moving towards the Democrats out of rejection of Trump. Right. And Iowa's one of those states where there's a Senate race and also the Electoral College in play as Biden could actually win that state. Let's go to another one of those, which is which is North Carolina, which is another big pickup. You've got the Democrat Cal Cunningham and you've got the Republican Tom Tillis, who also you know came in in that 2014 kind of Ebola ISIS wave. How's how's Cal Cunningham looking? And we also have a bit of a, a sexting scandal going on down there, don't we? Cal Cunningham texted with a Democratic strategist calling her historically sexy. There's so many questions around that. Historically sexy? I mean, what does that mean? Yeah, and that race is a little bit fascinating. There's a very complicated story. It sounds simple that he had an affair with someone he met probably this year who was at the, at the at that moment separated from her husband the spurned husband has said that some of the texts published in the media are not are not true so hmm. and what we've seen in a few cases is if you have a sex scandal especially if it's one where you're both adults the partner i should say was not a subordinate mm-hmm. if that burns for three or four days you're usually fine the question here is if this goes further uh, but the attitude of democrats has been about 300,000 votes have been cast already the Tom Tillis has to explain why Donald Trump's behavior is fine. Cal Cunningham's isn't. They're mm-hmm. they're kind of making lemonade with the fact that they can't actually uh, find another different candidate. Uh, one of the all time stupidest movies I've seen from an election year, though. I mean, I forget. Yes. Just normally having an affair as a candidate. That's generally something people try to avoid doing. Having her during a pandemic when I mean, I, we were just discussing how hard <laughs> it is to get around the country. I just don't know how he did it logistically. Uh, but yeah, that that is not being taken off the board. Is the point is that it's it's such, the, the the things have bent so much this year that even the Democrats are furious with this guy for creating risk where there wasn't any. He was ahead. Tillis was was terribly unpopular. They they kind of think they can grind this out despite his mistakes, and they've done this before, just in bluer states. You know, you've got uh, mm-hmm. Senator Blumenthal, Connecticut. A lot of Democrats were worried they'd have to cut bait on him oh, right. after he exaggerated his military experience. He survived. I mean. Look at who the president is. People have just over time put up with more and more scandal from their politicians. So I'm not making a prediction. I'm just, I'm just talking about how nihilistic we all are. Ten years ago, or were there enough voters who were so angry about the Republican Party that they'd, they'd vote for someone like this? I don't think so. In 2020, uh, the way with the week we just had, with, with the four weeks we could be having, I'm not ruling it out. Right. But but Cunningham kind of overnight moved from. I'd say the, the the person seen as the Democrats most likely right. fourth pickup to TBD. If you had these candidates on a poster board, which Chuck Schumer probably does, right. and you move them around, he, he got moved to a question mark column, yes. and, we'll see, and they'll see what happens. So what what about Montana? Interesting Senate race going on out there. Uh, you have a kind of ideal situation. So Democrats didn't get all the recruits they wanted, right? And I mentioned how they didn't get top recruits in every race. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the top recruit, honestly, is somebody that gets mentioned a lot, and and they weren't going to be that good of a candidate. Sometimes it's, it's like in Georgia, Stacey Abrams, uh, in Texas, a better work. Both people, I think, if had they been the nominees, mm-hmm. might be in a, in a more commanding position. Democrats right now are like, they're in the fight, but they're not ahead. And so in Montana, Democrats had a couple of second or third tier recruits, but they tried for a year to get Steve Bullock not to run for president, to run for Senate. He finally, after his presidential bid failed, after he was done with the work of the legislature, et cetera, he finally jumped in the race and turned it into a competitive mm-hmm. one overnight. And you, and you really... 
need to track Republican spending on this. I mean, you and I both do. They would love to have had states like Montana, like Alaska, right. like some of these places that the party just walked into in 2014. They'd love to have them off the board. I mean, some of those right. places that they won last time, they are. South Dakota's off the board. Uh, Arkansas's off the board. West Virginia. There's just, even though there's a you know, fascinating progressive candidate in that race, Republicans just, they're not spending any money. They're not too worried. Montana, they're yeah. really hoping they could, they could see, yeah, they could just take $20 million and move it from there to somewhere else. And they can't. They're, they're spending money. Bullock has not been ahead, but he's been a fairly popular governor. There's been a couple of attempts to drum up a scandal that haven't worked. And Bullock has run uh, a very kind of like a gubernatorial re-election campaign, but for the Senate seat. And he's he's helped, and this will be a theme too, he's helped it. When he ran for governor the last few times, he had to run first 10 and then 20 points ahead of the Democratic ticket. Uh, Joe Biden's not winning Montana right. right now, but the polling has him losing it by high single digits. So Bullet needs to outrun Biden by maybe nine points to win this, maybe less. Right. Another one they hope to have off the, the, the board was Alaska. And all of a sudden that's looking competitive. Now, yeah. Al Gross, he's supported by the Democratic Party. He would, he'll caucus with the, the Democrats. He's kind of a dream recruit, though he's not technically a, a Democrat, right? He's a, he's a commercial fisherman and a surgeon running against Dan Sullivan, who also won in, in 2014. He was born in the wake of an avalanche, bought his first fishing boat with a bank loan at age 14, and killed a grizzly bear in self-defense after it snuck up on him. Do you think that the, that Al Gross is serious? Uh, he is, and he's... Alaska is a, a strange political state. You, if, you, if you're winning... 200,000 votes in Alaska, mm-hmm. you've probably got elected. And that's not true in much of the country, not in the Senate race, not in the House race. Uh, and Alaska Democrats have this odd coalition that has put the brakes on some of the conservative governor's agenda. They had an independent governor for, for four years, and he, he kind of inherited the worst mm-hmm. economic situation the state had had, so it didn't end well. But you have a state that votes Republican, but uh, honestly, the days when it voted Republican by a landslide seem to have altered and one, one factor I, I think is less remarked on here is that uh, some of the gains they wanted from Republican rule, like uh, drilling in Anwar, that's done already. Right. So there's, there's not much what Republicans can offer. Something that, that I think has been remarked on a lot is it's just not, it's not a socially conservative state. Now, it has big socially conservative pockets in the Matsu Valley where Sarah Palin's from. But the, the swing voter in, let's say, Missouri is a conservative pro-life voter. The swing voter in Alaska doesn't care about that. Is is just kind of like a government off my back person, right? Uh, and the democratic messaging for, from from Al Gross and from uh, Elise Galvin, the other yeah, the other independent running for house, has been kind of a like right. Washington's a mess. Look at the corruption uh, that Republicans have done. The pebble mine issue, which is a little a little weedsy to get into, but but Al Gross got this great gift where uh, lobbyists for this mining project that's deeply unpopular in Alaska that always has been the Donald Trump Jr. actually opposed because he was unpopular when he was, campa- right. when he was campaigning, uh, that you have the, the head of that project who's since resigned just bragging about how easy it is to buy off Dan Sullivan. So you had a very smart campaign there. I mean, uh, they, they hired up some staff that you might normally have seen in kind of a front edge house race. They just decided to take a, take a gamble on Alaska and see if they could introduce this guy. And Republicans are, are trying very quickly in a few weeks, in a few weeks, really, to define mm-hmm. negatively 
this out of nowhere Democrat. And the problem in Alaska, and this is this is a, a fact that's really hard to track. Not only does Alaska have a lot of mail voting in general, but this year it's it's off the charts. Oh, right. So we're not sure how many people are going to be voting by by which point. We're going to get more data on that. But the, the timing for Democrats, even if they don't win this, was probably as good as they could they could manage. Yeah, and the economy has actually been extra brutalized up there because uh, because of the tourism industry. You know, people aren't taking cruises. Oh yeah. You know, uh, people are not traveling to Alaska in the way that they were before. Um, we're going to take a short break. Back in a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Georgia is a fascinating one because there are not one but two Senate races. Let's start with John Ossoff, who famously uh, ran in that special election, which was kind of the the introduction to the country to the to the resistance and the the ability of donors around the country to have this utterly bottomless well of money. He ended up losing by what two points or so to Karen Handel in this special election in the Georgia suburbs. But it was a harbinger of the way that these suburbs were were turning bluer, and so now he's running neck and neck against David Perdue, the you know, former CEO of Dollar General and a bunch of other uh, corporations who also is a you know, first-term you know, 2014 uh, product. Did you think John Ossoff had a shot at the beginning, and what, what do you think now? Uh, his his theory of the race made sense. It was just a lot of these races are Democrats probably where they maybe would have topped out at forty percent before their their they their floor is probably forty six forty seven. So he had a theory of how to win. It's a state where Democrats just been burned a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and again Republicans didn't quite take them seriously. When they did, they they started running a lot of attacks that were re- reminiscent of twenty seventeen. I mean, it's mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason my brain just retains the, in lieu of actually good information. My brain retains all these ads I've seen. They were running, Republicans were running ads against Ossoff in 2017, accusing him of being part of the radical left-wing mob back when it was just you know, footage of the Women's March or something. <laughs> so they're running the same plays against him, and Purdue has, hasn't distinguished himself much in the Senate. Part of this is if you're a Republican under Mitch McConnell's majority, your job has been to confirm judges and then maybe at the last minute provide mm-hmm. a vote for some deal that funds the government. <laughs> like no Republican running this year. Nobody's mm-hmm. really running on, here's what I did in the Senate. They're running on, I'm against socialism. Right. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a theme of when I dive into all the Republican ads this year. There's only a few who are trying to run on specific stuff they brought home. And the rest, their instinct uh-huh. is just to run against the crazy Democrat because that's, that's what psychs the base up. It has, in polling, it's actually been a little bit mixed. Republicans are spending a ton of money in this state, which again, they, I would say that they, they never thought they'd have to compete in Georgia when the year began. 
they did not think John Ossoff was going to suck in five, six right. million dollars of their advertising. They they really have been surprised that the the, the party's uh, losses in the outer suburbs of Atlanta are so steep uh, that they're they're worried about losing a lot of their majority in the House, which they drew. I mean, this is think about Georgia is one of these places right. where they drew the lines back when you know the term dummy man or maybe everyone does it but when you you draw something in you know 2011 and by 2018 starts to look stupid because you didn't imagine all these uh voters changing their minds or all these new people moving in that's kind of what happened in georgia and it's trickled up where democrats had this strong bench Mm -hmm. us running a fairly mistake-free campaign and the other race i think you're about to mention is there's this jungle Mm -hmm. primary for the senate seat that johnny isaacson used to have Republicans appointed uh, Kelly Loeffler, who's been uh, this is kind of famous now, just somebody who had no interest in real right-wing based politics, who's now running basically as a, a Barry Goldwater cartoon. Doug Collins, who's running as an even more pro-Trump candidate. Yeah, literally yeah. literally running as Attila the Hun. Yeah, there's just two ads that she's running comparing her because yeah. they're just Attila the Hun. Did you know Kelly Loeffler was ranked the most conservative senator in America? Yep. She's more conservative than Attila the Hun. Fight China. Got it. Attack big government. Yeah. Eliminate the liberal scribes. More conservative than Attila the Hun. Uh-oh. And so Loeffler is comparing herself to Attila Hun, for people who aren't following this closely enough, is because she is trying to get into the runoff, and there's an even more conservative Republican, Doug Collins, in the race. And so it brings up this yeah. dynamic where as as states are becoming purple, the remaining kind of local Republican Party moves further and further right. And you you saw this in, in Virginia play out yeah. pretty rapidly. I think you're, you're seeing it a little bit in North Carolina, even though the party there is still dominant. Are, are you seeing this around the country uh, that that as the state becomes competitive, the Republican Party almost becomes less competitive. Like they they head they head as far right as they can. Yeah, I am, and that's a factor in Texas where Alan West is now the chair of the party. It's a mm-hmm. factor in Arizona. It's right. been a, it's been an issue in Virginia. Virginia is kind of the patient zero of this, where Republicans lost ground, and for various reasons, uh, one of them, which is really you know inside baseball, is that they for a cycle replaced their um, primaries with a convention. They they did a little bit more of that this year because of COVID. The conventions have been nominating far more right wing candidates. So, mm-hmm. despite this model of Virginia, and despite the the alternative model where Republicans can can win stuff and they're running as moderates in like Vermont and Massachusetts, uh, these these parties in states that were red and have shifted quickly, they haven't adjusted in part because the people who left the party they weren't huge activists anyway, but the kind of people who might you know reliably vote for them, uh, vote show mm-hmm. up and vote in a primary. A lot of them just moved to the Democratic Party, not with incredible enthusiasm, but in some places, big numbers. I mean, that was the, the, the first signs of weakness for Republicans in Texas two years ago and Georgia this year, but Georgia two years ago too, was this huge primary turnout, especially in you know your, your Mariettas and your Sandy Springs and your, your Dentons and what have you. Minnesota is a bit of an outlier, uh, except one thing I'd point out about the Midwest is even the Republican Party leadership in those states is not that right wing. What they've done all year is go all in on um, anti-mask freedom, uh, keeping businesses open, things mm-hmm. like that. And they've, they've just bought themselves in because the energy of the party is from uh, the conservative movement, from the, the laissez-faire, you know, don't tread on me with the mask, from that side mm-hmm. of the party. You've, you've had them just 
staple themselves to what's not a super popular take. It hasn't been all year. I think there was an idea maybe in May that people get so sick of the lockdowns that they flip back the Republican Party. Right. We've got a month, less than a month, and it hasn't happened. And I don't imagine right. that the sickness of the president is going to move those numbers again. But you have right. even Republican parties in states where they were competitive, where they lost a little bit of ground in 2018. They just have not adapted by running as, as moderates. The only exception kind of is in the Michigan Senate race. You have this John James who ran in 2018 is running again and has run what the local media has kind of dinged him for, for a, a fairly, a little bit like Cal Cunningham's campaign in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Very much about the personality, about his military record, not taking positions on anything, uh, which is right. which has been brutally tough for these guys to just stay out of issues like uh, that grew out of the George Floyd protest, stay out of the ACA lawsuit. Uh, I mean, one, one final point about Michigan is this is a candidate who, again, ran in 2018. The lawsuit against the ACA that's currently heading Supreme Court, that existed in 2018 and he finally took a position on the lawsuit last month so for example like where republicans are running as moderates they're kind of having to step around right all these really far-right stances that the the republican party's taken right so now texas is a fascinating one you know beto o'rourke very nearly when you know finishes a couple points behind democrats flipped uh, i think two seats in the house but there were about nine or ten other house races that were you know that were single digit losses. And this time, you know, a couple polls this week have have Joe Biden tied, have MJ Hagar, the Democrat, just a point or two behind uh, John Cornyn. People are increasingly saying that Texas is actually real. Now, is it real or is this the kind of state that because of voter suppression, Democrats have to win by five or 10 to win it? Well, that's I'm glad you brought that part up because a thing that I think has both horrified Democrats and, and told them that they're on the right track is you've had just a number of efforts to expand the front, make it easier to, to vote, make it easier to drop a ballot off, make it easier to get an absentee ballot. All that stuff uh, just killed by conservative judges or by the governor. The governor himself put out an order that Harris County, which is bigger than most states in terms of population, in terms of size, and if you're talking about my home state, Delaware, uh, Harris County has one place mm-hmm. to drop off ballots and Loving County, which has like 100 people, has one place to drop off ballots. So <laughs> Democrats look at that and they say, well, there's not much we can do if judges keep siding with them, but they're doing it because there is a chance of us getting to 50% in the state. Uh, and so it is real. So there are just so many conservative uh, white rural voters in Texas. They left the Democratic Party 20, 30 years ago, and they're all in for Trump. They, they were all in for Cruz. They actually voted more for Cruz in 18 than they did in 12. They are their growth is being outpaced by the growth of more liberal voters in the big cities and the suburbs. And the X factor Mm -hmm. has been, and this is like 70 years of this being the X factor is the Rio Grande Valley where uh, the U S Mexico border, heavily Latino, heavily Hispanic, generally democratic, but it can have low turnout. And even in 2016, the turnout in in parts of the Rio Grande Valley was lower than it was in 2012, despite improvement for Hillary Clinton around the state. Uh, This is, I, I, I say this has been gone forever. I mean, when the poll tax existed, when Texas had that until the 60s, that was half the Democratic Party's job was just handing out money to Latino voters to mm-hmm. pay the thing and vote. So they, they, they look at the map and they say there are enough human beings who want to vote for us here to maybe win this thing. It's just how much do we want to invest for in order for us to lose 38 electoral votes because of some court decision says we've got to throw out 100,000 ballots. I think that's what worries people there. 
Well, Dave Weigel, thank you so much for joining us. I, I'm hearing my kids in the background, so I think I better go go deal with them for a minute. Um, be, be safe on the road. Be safe tonight. Oh, awesome. It was good to be here. Now, the media spends about 99.9% of its time talking about who people are going to vote for and why, but they don't spend nearly enough time talking about how they vote or whether they're going to be even able to vote. We are now going to be joined by Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who has been sounding the alarm on, to, on social media and in, and in interviews about what he sees as a, a apparently so far successful Republican strategy to kind of panic Democratic voters into doing the wrong thing. And he's going to explain a little bit about that here. John, uh, thanks so much for joining Deconstructed. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So talk to us a little bit about Democratic attitudes toward mail-in voting and what, what you're seeing on the ground in Pennsylvania. Sure. Well, let, let me run through a really brief history of vote by mail in Pennsylvania. Um, last year, it was groundbreaking in terms of voting reforms in Pennsylvania. And m- far more Republicans voted for it than Democrats did. And this was supposed to be like a, a great moment in evolution in democracy in Pennsylvania. And then, as you know, the whole narrative mm-hmm. flipped when the president started trashing mail-in ballots. Mail-in voting, it's going to be the greatest fraud in the history of elections. The only way they can win Pennsylvania, frankly, is to cheat on the ballot. And, and everything like that. So the Pennsylvania GOP is in this incredibly awkward position of having championed and voted for unanimously, as far as I know, a bill now that they can't really defend to the leader of their own party. And so it's created this really weird kind of reality. And Democrats, I believe, are increasingly becoming unnerved by the idea of vote by mail, which I say is completely unjustified and unwarranted. And my concern has consistently been that that's been one of the goals of the other side all along is to sow that doubt to foment chaos that could ultimately suppress turnout in a way that wouldn't necessarily be obvious otherwise. And so what you're saying is that if you've applied to vote by mail, you should actually just go ahead and and vote by mail. Absolutely. And, And why is that? Walk us through that. Because the mail can handle it. And we're we're almost a month out from election day. And if you're mailing to a local address from Philadelphia, like bear in mind, every ballot that you send is going to be a local, local letter. You know, if I'm in Allegheny County, I'm sending it Mm -hmm. from the Pittsburgh area to the Pittsburgh area. It's not like you're sending it to, you know, uh, California or something. So this is all very local uh, mail. And you have almost a month for it to get there and count. In fact, you do have a month if you count the three days after the election day that these ballots will count so long as it's postmarked. So I sent you a a video of a line of people just dropping off their ballots. And I'm like, why would you stand in a line when you could just drop it in the mailbox? I mean, we paid the postage. We literally paid, you know, you literally have to just drop it in the mailbox and don't worry about it. But that tells me that uh, people's confidence has been rattled, that they're willing to stand in a line, right. you know, half a mile long just to drop off their ballot. And so correct me if I'm wrong, there are about 2.5 million absentee ballots have been 
requested. Correct. Yeah. They're overwhelmingly Democratic, more than more than 70 percent. Correct. And if if somebody gets rattled and they decide, you know what, I don't trust the mail. Trump is sabotaging it. Uh, it's too important. I'm going to show up in person. What happens if they don't bring their absentee ballot with them? They will have to fill. Well, one, they would have to know that you can always request a provisional ballot. And then that creates its own set of challenges. Logistically speaking, that is a much more in-depth and complicated process. You know, those those were always a fail-safe. So in the rare exception, if someone shows up that isn't on the list or there is an issue, it's not meant to accommodate uh, a, a black swan event where you have this wholesale idea of, People have requested a ballot and they say, you know what, I already I, I'm doing it in person, but you have to bring your ballot, your envelope, all of that in order for them to cancel that out. And if you don't, your only option is a provisional ballot. Right. And then and then you've jammed up the line. And as I understand it, this is the law in a, in a few other states as well. And it's it's totally counterintuitive. You know, if I'm thinking, well, I'm going to go vote in person, I don't think well, I need to bring the absentee ballot exactly. that I'm not going to cast. Yeah. I would just go down and vote. I probably would have tossed it already. Yeah, exactly. And you think this is their goal, like that they, they hope that they can create enough chaos at the polls that people just turn around and go home. Precisely. Precisely. Like people get mail every day. Right. The mail works. It might be a little bit slower, but you ha you saw that video in Philadelphia that I sent you. You have a, a line a mile long of people, at least from what they said, handing in their ballots. So that tells me they don't trust the mail. And like, in other words, they're saying, I don't trust the U.S. mail service to get a letter from one point in Philadelphia, you know, maybe three blocks or a mile to another point in Philadelphia in the next 30 days. Come on. Right. And so you've, you've been working with a Republican commissioner. And so this isn't a partisan matter either. No, your, your, no, your point not at here, all. Your point here is that the, the mail will, will get your ballot where it needs to go, put it in the mail and be done with it. Exactly. I trust the mail. And as long as you follow the instructions and put one envelope inside another, there's a hundred percent chance that vote is going to count and delivered on time. Well, b before I let you go, Lieutenant Governor, as, as you know, Senator Toomey, the state Republican senator, said he's not running for re-election in, in 2022. You giving a you giving a look to that race? Uh, I, sure. Uh, there's there's two two open lanes in Pennsylvania uh, in 22 that that uh, and uh, considering uh, uh, both of them. Uh, the, the Democrats have a, a deep bench and there's a, an embarrassment of riches of good quality candidates for sure. But yeah, Toomey's retirement caught a lot of people by surprise. And I genuinely wish him well in his retirement. I, it's it's a, not a partisan thing. And uh, but yeah, both uh, both lanes are open. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us here on Deconstructed. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That was John Fetterman. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept and also the author of the book, We've Got People. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. 
If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.